text. It was our text last week. We're going to transition into 2 Kings today, but we're going to tie in to the narrative from last week. Last week, we were uh, developing the context of the apostasy that King Ahab, the seventh king and the descendants of the kingship of uh, the, the divided kingdom of Israel. And so at that time, as I clarified for you last week, by the time you read the accounts following the death of Solomon, David's son, the kingdom of Israel is divided in a northern kingdom of ten tribes and two southern tribes called Judah. And this narrative comes to us from the ten northern tribes. The, the temple is in the southern part of the, uh, of the area where Jerusalem is. And they were able to maintain a little more pure form of worship and limit apostasy to the, uh, in comparison to the degree that the northern kingdom. And we see the introduction, not just of idolatry, but of apostasy that, that really burst forth during the days of Ahab. We're going to stand and honor the reading of the Word of God today. How many of you believe that the scriptures that you hold are prophetic? What do I mean by that? That means they're living and they speak to us. These are not just historical records. These are the words of God captured on paper that have the life of God behind them. And God can speak to us from this word. Do you believe that today? I believe that. So let's read this. So we're about, I don't know, 15 or so verses of Scripture. We're going to be jumping around. And Sister April is following me there in the booth. In the 31st verse, uh, 31st verse of chapter 16, this is to connect to last week. And it came to pass, chapter 16. I'll let you find it. I should have already told you that. I'm sorry. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him, Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now let's turn to chapter 21, one verse of Scripture. We're just building a narrative, if we can. Now the author writes, that was written in front of Ahab's uh, tenure as king. Now he's writing in the midst of Ahab's tenure as king. It says, there was none like, 25th verse, there was none like unto Ahab. Now you could stop right there. You see that applied positively and negatively in the record of the kings. It was said about Josiah, a later distant uh, king of Judah, that there was none like him before him who walked in all the ways of his father David. It was a powerful, prophetic word about Josiah's life. Here, look what it says about Ahab. There was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. I heard somebody's clearing their voice, a little tension. We're going somewhere. Now, y'all got to stay with me here. We're building a narrative today. We're going to get prophetic with this and address this in the spirit today. Chapter number 9 now, we're jumping ahead. Ahab is now dead. He suffered the judgment of God. Now there's a king that is uh, being anointed here. We're going to read that's going to take his place. He's not of his descendants. It says in the first verse of the ninth chapter, Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets. Read this with me. And said unto him, Gird up thy loins, take this box of oil in thine hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. 
And when thou comest thither, look out there, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, not the king of Judah, but Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go, it sounds kind of like a sushi bar, doesn't it? And go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil. Look at this. Take him into an inner chamber. Take the box of oil. So this is done privately. And pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not. Verse 4, So the young men... Young man, even the young man, the prophet. So he's a prophet, a young prophet, a protege of Elisha, who was a, pro, a protege of Elijah, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captain of the host were seated. Were seated. And he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all of us? So there was a group of men gathered there. And he said, Well, is it to all of us? He said, No, it's to thee, O captain. And he arose. He did as the man of God said. He went into the house, into a private place, and he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Now, I intended to stop reading right here because it's very... Um, uh, specific and prolific and, and, and uh, just d very uh, accurate and just whatever the word I'm lacking, but you just got to read it for the verse 8 through 10. We're just going to have to read it. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, which means even his children, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahiah, Jehaha. And the dogs, look at this, 10th verse. The prophetic word to Jehu is a prophetic word not only by Elisha, but originally by Elijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Now verse 22. And it came to pass, same chapter, when Joram, now Joram is the son of Ahab and Jezebel, who is presumed to be the king upon the death of his father. And he is reigning. But see, God can uh, put whoever he wants. Come on, man can say, well, man can coronate, but God can anoint. And so when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And look what Jehu said. He answered, what peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts, catch that word, her witchcrafts are so many. Now verses 30 through 37 will conclude the reading of Scripture. It says here, I know I'm reading a rather lengthy portion, but you'll be seated and I'll be standing here in a moment. That'll be all right. Now this is the narrative and the record of Jehu fulfilling the prophetic words spoken to him at the time of his anointing. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her face, and she tired or teared her head, and she looked out at a window, a window. And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace who slew his master? And he lifted up his, he didn't even talk to her. He lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And so out of the shadows, 
out where you couldn't see, suddenly there appeared, there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, Go, see now this cursed woman, and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. And they went to bury her. But they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him and said, This is the word of the Lord. Thank God for the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, which he spake. It was violent, but it was his word to address the apostasy of the land. This is the word which he spake by a servant, Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel, so that they, shall, shall, that they shall not say, this is Jezebel. There wasn't nothing left of her to give her a burial. Because she had succumbed to the prophetic judgment of God. I want you to look at this last. It's the same passage as we read it. But it's found very quickly in verse number 33. This is our title for our message today. Every year, if you've been coming to our church for many years, I've uh, uh, with, uh, taken the effort to print out to the men of our church a, a wristband that captures my, the title of my message and the theme of my message on Father's Day. And in this verse of Scripture, it's violent. It gives us the prophetic word fulfilled that was spoken through Elijah and Elisha. And Jehu is, is the one speaking. And he said, throw her down. And today, my message is entitled, y'all got to stay with me. Don't judge me or this message too prematurely. But on my wristband that I'm going to give the men of our assembly today, and you'll understand more about it in a few moments, it says here, Jehu said, throw her down. I want you to understand there's a prophetic word attached to that, that it takes the ear of the Spirit to hear. A carnal mind will misplace this message, but someone with a spiritual ear can hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And today, God of heaven, we are grateful for the privileged opportunity to read the Word of God, to study and meditate, and to listen. And Father, if Elijah could hear the prophetic word, if Elisha could pass the prophetic word, if an unnamed prophet could then, Father God, fulfill his portion of the prophetic word by anointing Jehu, and if Jehu could rise up and accomplish the prophetic word, then we today, God can stand in this house with our hearts pliable before yours and say, let the prophetic word still speak. It's not dead historical text. It's not just the written record of the generation of the kings, but it's a prophetic word for our generation. God, thank you for every person that's under the sound of my voice today. But as they know, I'm going to speak with a clear conscience, particularly to the men of our fellowship. Now, certainly, Father, I'll minister today to every person. But I pray for the anointing. I pray this. Now, church, listen to this. Last week in prayer, my preparation was in sermon preparation. This week, my preparation was in servant preparation. And so, God, today, I'm going to put my trust in the preparation 
of the Holy Spirit, that the servant is prepared to minister the word. In Jesus' name, and all God's children said, amen and amen. And you can be seated. Now, let me say this very, very carefully as a prelude and to lead into this message. You've got to give me the opportunity to make clarification to strong statements that will be made from the pulpit today. Hopefully, I will not make mistakes or say something that I can potentially later in my own heart and life regret. But I do believe that God's put a word in my heart for our church family to speak to. I'm not responsible for the church as a whole. I'm not responsible for some of the mega church ministries that we see and we uh, follow on uh, the television. I'm simply responsible for the good men and women that make up First Assembly of God in Heber Springs to do what God's called me to do. I want to, you know, uh, being in the military as I was myself, and I always honor the men and the women that are part of our church that are veterans or active duty themselves to this very day. We've got men and women that are serving. Uh, warfare is a part of life. Even in the absence of it, the preparations of the defense, strength by defense, I, and I believe that, don't you? Or I believe, I believe in, in, in peace by, uh, by, by safety and, and, and uh, strength, don't you? I believe that. I believe that if you flex your mes- muscles enough, sometimes the enemy will say, you know what, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going over there. And so, so when I read the Word of God, there are a lot of militant terms and there's a lot of militant things in the Word of God. Now, not everybody is, uh, has a military mindset. Not everybody thinks about warfare and bloodshed. I was in the military, and I'm thankful and grateful that I, wasn't, uh, that I didn't have to see combat. Under the sound of my voice, though, there are combat war veterans under the sound of my voice. And, and so they certainly can uh, connect, certainly emotionally, to this text. But, but you're here today, and you may be the most... Uh, you know, peaceful, passive person in all, on all the planet. But let me tell you, when you read the Word of God, the Word of God is filled with violence. Not just physical violence, spiritual violence. Je- I told you last week, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. But it wasn't a physical sword. We don't wage our warfare today in those days with swords and spears and shields. We don't wage our warfare today as believers with tanks and with uh, uh, the armory that we see being produced, uh, it, it, but we wage our warfare in the spirit. We're, fight, we're not fighting just enemies foreign domestic. We're fighting celestial. We're fighting, the, yeah, I believe in aliens. No, not E.T., the extraterrestrial, but I believe in fallen spirits cast out of heaven that have been cast down to the darkness of this world who are set on the destruction of God's crown creation, and that is mankind. And we want to expose his plot and his scheme. Come on, somebody. There's a war in America today. There's a war that's going on right now under the sound of my voice. And you say, Pastor, what is it? It is a war against masculinity. I'm going to just be honest and tell you, it's a war against men. It's a, it's a cultural uh, thing that has arisen in our generation where somehow or another, if you're a man, you are somehow a bad man. We all get the, There are good men and there are bad men. Because you know what? There are good women and there are bad women. 
I wrote it in my notes this way, that I said oppression is not, you know, we see a lot about today about people trying to break loose of the oppression of man, that, that mankind, toxic masculinity, we say, has put upon uh, people, especially women. I want to say this, oppression is not the result of manhood. Oppression is the fruit of sin. Last I looked, the Bible says we're all sinners that came short of the glory of God. And we needed a Savior. And we found that Savior in the man. See, there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And so grouping all men together as oppressors is wrong and immoral. But the culture is certainly at war. Now listen, as in the days of Jezebel, I'm going to use some terms here today that I'm only extracting this from the cultural narrative. I'm going to say this today, the militant feminist movement. You understand, I believe in feminism. Matter of fact, I believe in it more than most of you. I believe in honoring the biblical feminism that I see in the Word of God. And I honor it, and I respect it, and I'm equally, equally, ever bit as much as proud as my three beautiful daughters as I am my three handsome sons. And I'm just as grateful for the women of God that they are as the men. Matter of fact, sometimes they're excelling. My sons have got to play catch-up at times, a little bit to the pattern and the precedence. But I want to say this today concerning this. That when I use the term militant feminist, I'm talking about a distorted view of feminism. I'm talking about a sexually uh, a promiscuous culture, promiscuity, and the ex certainly the extreme side even within the LGBT community that we see. And some of you may be thinking, well, Pastor Brown, is this one of those sermons? No, it's not one of those sermons. But listen, I'm going to preach the truth whether you like it or not. All right, men or women, no matter what side of any debate that you're on. I've searched the Word of God. I believe in this. And let me just say this. I'm going to use the term emasculate today. The reason why I say that is because I see that as part of the war on men, to emasculate a man's masculinity. In the, let, me give, let me define it for a moment. In Latin, the word emasculate simply means to castrate. But the actual cultural application of emasculation is to deprive a man of his male role or his identity. We have created a mindset somehow in America today that if you want to, to, to walk in a place where you recognize a distinction in the sexes and that God has ordained men in certain defined roles in the Word of God in their home, in the family, and in the church community, then somehow or another, then we have to be oppressors. And I disagree with that today in the name of Jesus. And that's the war that I'm coming to fight today in Jesus' name. It's that mindset that's seeking to emasculate the men under the sound of my voice till they cannot become the men that God's called them to be. Let me tell you, ma'am, let me tell you, lady, the best thing that could ever happen to your life, to your family, to your home is for a man to humble himself before God and become the husband that God's called him to be and to become the father that God's called him to be and to get up in the morning with a clear conviction that he's anointed of God to be a servant leader in his own home. I'll tell you what, that would set the rest of your life and your children's children's life in an area that blessing would flow upon you. But let me tell you today, i got to be careful or I'll get ahead of myself. We call it toxic masculinity today. 
Uh, here's what happened recently. There was a modern day, I call her a modern day Jezebel. I don't care whether you like it or not, Hillary Clinton. At a most recent Planned Parenthood event, you know what drink they were serving at the, at the Planned Parenthood event that Hillary and the others were drinking? It was a drink called toxic masculinity. Because there is a perversion in the minds of men, that, that, or the minds of some, men and women, that a man cannot be a man with the character of handling people the right way and ministering to people and still be the leader that God's called him to be. But I thank God for the word of God today. I thank God I don't have to be moved by a perverted and a distorted culture, and neither do you. I thank God today that we have a record that teaches me how to live, teaches me how to walk, teaches me to be the person that God called me to be. The spirit of Jezebel is a term that I'm going to use today. That's who our target is. Our targets, the Bible talks about that our warfare is not with flesh and blood. My warfare is not with anybody. I'm not here to degrade women in any capacity. I'm here to attack a spirit. I'm here to go after a spirit. I told you last week that when idols perish or absorbed into cultures replaced by a new culture, they may reshape the idol, but the devil still lives. Let me tell you, Jezebel may have been crushed under the feet of Jehu's horses 2,000, 3,000 years ago, but the spirit of Jezebel still lives. And she searches for any entity. And when I say she in that term, it's really no male or female in that sense because it's a devil. Right? The spirit of Jezebel, I'll validate it for you because some of you say, well, Pastor, I don't believe that. That's not consistent with New Testament teaching, especially the teaching of Jesus because Jesus is all about love. He is all about love, but he's also about truth. He is all because I tell you what, you don't really love somebody if you don't tell them the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter in the Word of God says that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. And so if I tell you the truth in love, then I love you more than the person that pacifies you in your air. Let me just keep on going. And so the spirit of Jezebel has created a culture that views masculinity, even godly masculinity, as oppressive and a threat to the liberation of women. And I just want to reject that in Jesus' name. I know that there have been times that there are, there are evil men. I know that. I know that, but you can't group everybody together. You can't do that. Did you know, listen to this, even there is something that's taken place in America. We've gone from being a unisex society, which is what about 10 years ago I addressed that. And then now we're a genderless society. And now I don't even know where we're going from here. Did you know all of this has happened until it's affecting men biologically? Did you know recent studies, listen to this, Recent studies that have compared the biological makeup of men today to 40 years ago in the 70s has shown that men's, listen, I'm going to be frank with you today and just forthright, man's sperm count is down 60% since the 70s, a man's makeup. His testosterone level has decreased. A 40-year-old man, I know men's de testosterone decreases as they age, but 40 years ago compared to 40 years ago today, there's been a 30% decrease in a man's testosterone. Something is at work that's even affected the biological makeup of the male. And, and I, I come along to challenge it in the name of Jesus. There are those that believe 
that the war on masculinity will result in a more, uh, a more safe and peaceful, loving environment, especially if we can uh, put people in a place where there's more feminine leadership in the home. Let me give you an example of this very, very quickly. Let's consider, though, what I believe is the error of what that statement that I just made, that somehow the home, the culture, the family, the community will be better if the men are either more feminine, effeminate, or emasculated, creating a more feminine environment for all to live in, will be happier, will be more kinder, will walk in love. So we can say, okay, well, let's take the African-American community for just a moment, where only one in four homes have a father in the home. Let me ask you today, has that resulted in more peaceful young black men on the streets of the United States of America? You answer the question for yourself. Violent young men are raised without fathers teaching them how to be godly young men. And the end result is they're searching for a father's love and discipline. The sexual generation has also produced some, this is also just factual. I intended to come up here today and bring you a lot of the, I spent a lot of time studying out a lot of, you know, authors and different perspectives uh, and, and bring all that to you. That's just not me, though. I could, I can quote, I, but I just can't do that. That's just not who I am. I'm a pastor, a biblical narrative, a prophetic word. That's where my strength is, and I've got to stay in my strength here today. But there's a couple of things I want you to think about for just a moment because I told you last week it's about to go down. Let me tell you what's happening because I believe, church family, that as I, we have the church, we have America. The church and America are not the same thing. Hello? But we do believe that God had a specific purpose for America. Our founding fathers, many of which, and I know here goes that, well, many of them were racist and they were slave owners. Yes, there were some of the founding fathers, but certainly not all. Just a small fragment. Matter of fact, many others fought to give their life to create a place where we do honor a person, whether it doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. And so, but many of those early founding fathers believed that God was raising up America to be a bright and a shining light to cast the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. One of the founding fathers of America, John uh, Hancock, said these words. He said, I can't quote it exactly. He said, but he believed that God was raising up the United States of America to be a mission-sending or a missionary-sending nation so that the light of the gospel, the light of the gospel would go around the world. Well, obviously, if that was the intent and if God was using the formation of our country to be the place where people, the church would come together and send missionaries around the world, then the enemy wants to break down and destroy that nation. And so what I've got to deal with every time that I come up here, I've got the church, I've got uh, the country, sometimes there's an overlap and sometimes they're entirely separate one from the other. And I've got to find my right place as I, as, I, as I minister the Word of God. But if you think about for just a moment what could be happening in our nation, if, we, if you believe in the subtle, uh, it used to be subtle, it's not subtle any longer, attack of the enemy to destroy the nation of America, when you look at what the sexual uh, generation has produced, 
We have less marriages today. Because why? Get married. Right? Because, you know, you said, Paul said it's better to marry than it is to, Paul, a single man, said it's better to marry than it is to burn with lust. You don't have to burn with lust. You can gratify any way you want to in America. So we have less marriages. As a result, we have a declining birth rate. And if you study on this, you will see that the current population trend in the United States of America today, 40 years from now, there won't be enough people working in the workforce to provide Social Security for the next generation. All right? Let's go one further than this. So you know what's happening is, is that people are turning to, in order to, to feed the workforce to immigration, because most of the immigrants have many more children. And this is for another message altogether, but I'll just throw it out there today, to Islam. Because the average American couple has two children or less, while the average Islamic couple has six children or more. So you can see the demographics. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Things, that's why I had a clear conscience when I stood on this stage last week and said, it's about to go down. There's something at work. Without a spiritual and a cultural shift, things are going to go from bad to worse. I know this isn't a good forecast that you hope to get on, on Father's Day, but I'm just telling you, unless there is a cultural shift. But I believe there can be a cultural shift. When I was in the Northeast, the Northeast is inundated with witchcraft. I know that the leaves turn brown in the, in the fall, and it's beautiful, and you can sing with Reba, whoever's in New England in the fall. I know. I understand all that. But let me tell you, there's witchcraft, there's idolatry, there's perversion. When I walked through there, I felt like I was Paul at Athens, and I told Sister Sherry, I said, Sister Sherry, I said, the only thing that can ever penetrate this darkness is a revival of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are blinded to some of it because we live in a little safer place called the Bible Belt in the South or the Midwest. But it's a whole different world when you get along the East Coast and the West Coast. And the mindsets of people are totally different than, and their values and their morals and their traditions are totally different than your, that mine and your values here today. And we've got to be aware that things are radically changing around us. So what are we going to do? Hide in the corner? Or what are we going to do? Be backed away in fear as the spirit of Jezebel pervades our culture? Or are we going to rise in faith and say, Dear God, let me be the man or the woman God's called me to be. Let me rise up and not be ashamed. What is a godly man? What is a godly I thought about that for a moment. Even in the culture of the church. Did you know when you think about this, I thank God for our visitors today. We are so appreciative. But did you know what studies show about if you're a visitor and you're trying to decide on a church family, that there are two things that are primarily going to dictate whether or not you choose uh, to attend or join that church. Number one, it's going to be the female over the male. It's going to be the wife or the girlfriend over the man that's going to make the decision. And she's going to make, this is studies validated studies that she's going to make her decision not based upon the doctrine of the church, not even based upon the worship that's in the church, not based upon the godly character of the men and women that worship there, but based upon how she likes the bathroom, the ladies' bathroom when she goes into the bathroom. That's where we're at as a culture today. Maybe that's why our church is not full every Sunday. Because I'm going to be honest. I'm okay. I want the bathroom to look good for you. That's fine. 
That's fine. I'm all good for that. I've worked in there myself. I'm still working on another bathroom in the coffee shop. I'll do my part. But I'm more concerned about the doctrine that's going to be preached when you walk through the doors of this building, rather not whether or not you got flowers on the wall in the bathroom. Maybe you don't want flowers on the wall. Maybe you want deer. I don't know. I've got a gobbler fan. I know Shane does. We'll put one of those up there if that's what you want. We, I'm not, that's the, I want the Word. Come on, somebody. I want the Word to pierce our hearts and minds, uh, to change us into the... What does the Scripture say in defining what a godly man is? Let me tell you, very, first of all, sexual distinction has always been a part of the Word of God. We, I said it earlier, I said we used to be called, uh, 10 years ago, we had drifted into a unisex society. Now we're drifting into a genderless society. Or the attempt of it, and I don't even know, we've already come through those waters. I don't even know where we're going from there. But the Word of God has never, never backed away from defining roles in relationship and in the home and even in the church. And sometimes they're defined according to gender. Yes, I said it. Sometimes they're defined according to gender. And you've got to know what God's saying to you as a husband, as a man, as a father, and you as a wife, a mother, or a single lady. You've got to know. It's up to you. That's why we are students of God's Word. We want to know what God's saying. Distinctions are designed by God to complement, not to compete with. I hate the competition that's being created. I want to share with you today and remind you of this. If you're a part of the body of Christ, you're exhorted to not live like the world. I know these are cultural trends, but cultural trends can be an error. It was a cultural trend that led Jezebel to have an opportunity to expose the people of Israel to the worship of those idols that I talked about last week. It was a cultural trend to begin to keep the people away from the true worship of Jehovah. It was a cultural trend. Cultural trends do not always have the stamp of God's approval upon them. That's why God gave us His Word. So that we can know the Word of God and we can walk accordingly. I've told you this countless times. I'm going to say it one more time. But Ephesians 4 and 17 says that Paul writing and he said, I would that you would not walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. What was he saying? He's saying now that you're saved, you're a part of a blood-bought body of Christ. You are not your own. You've been purchased by His atoning sacrificial blood. You can't have it your way. The man of God said it earlier. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's got to be Lord over all of your life, not just part of your life. You can't allow the culture to speak to you while you shut your ears to the Word of God and still call yourself a child of God. You've got to be who God's called you. I'm preaching way better than you are shouting today. I told myself to be calm today, and that's all right, but I want you to know today that what I'm sharing with you is a passion inside of me. I believe in men on Father's Day doing what God's called them to do. What is that? I believe in servant leadership. I tell every man that I marry what I mean by marry. i got to clarify for you today. When I perform the wedding ceremony, I challenge everyone with the same words. I challenge our staff. I challenge you. I challenge my sons. I say to the man, you've got to be the first one up in the morning, and you've got to be the last one in bed at night because the responsibility has been laid upon you by the Word of God. I'm going to challenge it. I don't care what the spirit of Jezebel says. I'll silence her in the name of Jesus. I'm not talking about a person. I'm talking about a spirit. A man is to provide for his family. What does that mean? I'll just, I'll, you want me to talk about it? I'll talk about it. 
I'll talk about it today. I've told, I've said it all along. You can get mad at me. All I can tell you is I believed it was my responsibility to provide for my family. If I had to work two jobs, I worked two jobs. My wife had a bachelor's degree. I did not. I had a degree from Wilburn University, and I was growing in my doctorate of dad that I have in my office today. That's the only degrees that I have. Yes, perhaps Sherry's uh, uh, education would have made it more uh, valuable for her to have been in the workforce, but we chose collectively. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. We had children coming. And I saw those children, uh, one came after the other, after the other, they just kept coming. <laughs> Hallelujah. Don't let me deter too far with that, because I don't have Sherry parked out there just yet. My six retirement accounts were growing. That's the way I look at it. My six retirement accounts were growing. But I knew that was her dream, that was her desire, and we were going to do whatever it took. And I took the lead in that. I would do whatever it would take to give her that opportunity to satisfy the desire. Because that's what we do is we complement one another in a godly marriage. And we do everything that we can to help each other achieve and to become the person that God's called them to be. And it's my responsibility to say this. I believe a man should love his wife as Christ loved the church if you're married. That you should speak kind words to your wife and about your wife. I believe that you should teach and discipline your children. Listen, I think it ought to mean something that when your wife says to your children, you better wait till your daddy gets home. They ought to know what that means. I know that's not, you know, everybody don't want to hear that, but I believe that that ought to be something that puts the fear of God in the heart of your children. That says, listen, mama has been stressed, she's tired, she's frustrated, and she's aggravated, and she doesn't feel, because if she disciplines in that moment, she's going to tear that child up. But she says those words, she's going to say, you better get ready because your daddy's coming home. And when you come in, you need to come into the house and you need to deal with the business at hand. And you need to train up your children in love and don't be afraid to discipline your children because the Bible uses this analogy of a father and a son to teach about his love to us. He said there's no true godly father that doesn't love his children by disciplining their children. We live in a generation today where we don't know anything at all about. We see little children out and about running like little hellions. And I'm telling you, that's not the will of God. The will of God is for that father and mother to have children that know their voice. They know the snap of their finger. They know the look in their eye. And if they're not getting the discipline they need, they'll take that child to a back room and they will deal with it privately. But when that child comes out of that back room, it's going to have a new attitude altogether. All together. You know what? Because that's what a man of God does. And I told my kids a long time ago, I don't mind being the bad guy. I'll be the bad guy because I believe in the things that I'm sowing in your heart and in your life. We need godly men to come to the front and be leaders in homes and leaders in our churches, recognizing that we're the head of a union that's designed by God to be anointed. Did you know the, the same apostle, let me tell the ladies here today, the same apostle that wrote to you about grace, about love, about all those things is the same apostle that said you're not to usurp your husband's authority. Oh, I knew it'd get real quiet in here right there. That's all right. I'm going to just tell you. I know every family's a little bit different. And you say, Pastor, you're leaving out my family because my husband is not doing his part and all that. And I know there are sometimes you're asked to do things that you are not be asked to do because of the negligence of a husband. I understand all of that. But I'm going to stay somewhere in the middle ground here for just a little while and say to the narrative as a whole, the reason why, this is my belief, this is the reason why God told the woman not to usurp a 
husband's authority is because the anointing is poured on the head. The Bible plainly says, without, uh, without misinterpreting the Word of God, that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. I believe in the anointing. I believe the anointing flows on the head, and then it flows on the shoulders and the body, and then it flows because it's fragrant to those that are around it. And there are those in the church and even in the church that want the anointing and they want it by usurping their husband's rightful place. And that's wrong in the sight of God. you got to back up, ma'am. I told you I wasn't leaving you out on Father's Day as well. There are some things you can't do. Sometimes you got to just step back and say, man, it's your moment. Just like we used to tell the children, pooper, get off the pot. This is your moment right here. Right here, you got to do it. You got to, it's just your moment. This is not mine. I'm going to stay right here in my lane, so to speak. I'm going to wait for you to do your part so that the blessing can fall upon all of us. So I challenge you today in the name of Jesus. God's design is for the husband and the father to be anointed. The thing I still pray for the most in all my life is not to be educated, but it is to be anointed. Some of you don't know what anointed means. It means to have the sweet fragrance of a divine entity, the power of the Holy Spirit resting on your life. So people don't, some people don't want to be around you because they're uncomfortable, because there's something in you that's agitating the sin and the deceit inside of them. And you say, Pastor, what it is the anointing of God. It's the Spirit of God. It's the fragrance of God. But to others, it is the sweet savor of the living Christ on the inside of you. And they want to come to it because of the fragrance of Christ in your life. It's the empowerment to do what you would not ordinarily be able to do. It's the power to say what you ordinarily would not have the boldness to say. See, Pastor Brown, it's not a bold person. I'm a meek and quiet person. I typically would rather sit in the corner and be reserved. But when I got anointed years ago by the Spirit of God, it changed my personality. And I preach, I know in the safety of the fishbowl, but I'm raising up a generation of men and women that wants to live their life according to the biblical narrative, not according to the cultural trends or norm. So the war on men has been inspired by the spirit of Jezebel. That's my person. You say, Pastor, is that really? I don't want to take you for the sake of time there, but did you know in Revelation chapter number 3, Jesus used this same analogy to speak to a church. He said, I have one thing against thee, because thou allowest that woman Jezebel to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. And he said, I will judge her and her children. Yehovah, Jesus of love, said concerning his church, because it's a spirit. Come on, somebody, it's a spirit. Ma'am, you got to guard yourself. Sir, you got to guard yourself. That spirit wants to influence you and influence your home. So I'm going to start bringing this to a close here in just a moment. I came along to tell you today my prayer for us, my prayer for the men of this assembly, the men, my sons and your sons, and for all of us to be who God's called us to be, and that is the spirit of Jehu today. Say, Pastor, what is the spirit of Jehu? 
Let me take a moment of time to talk about that in closing today. Jehu came at the prophetic word when God said, I'm going to judge Ahab because of the blood that he shed, not only him, but his wife Jezebel. Jezebel had cut off and launched warfare against the prophets of God. Jezebel had emasculated the men of her generation. Jezebel had stolen the vineyard of Naboth and killed Naboth and his sons to give the vineyard to Ahab when Ahab was too timid to go out in warfare and take it. He had no right to it. Naboth said, I'm not going to give it to you. It's another sermon altogether. Naboth said, God forbid that I would give the inheritance of my fathers that I got from my father and I'm going to give to my sons to the likes of you. But when uh, when, they, when, when Ahab went back home, Jezebel heard about it. And Jezebel said, you lay right there on the bed. I'll go and get the land for you. She usurped her a husband. And she set Naboth up. She had him killed and his sons killed. And I'll tell you what, God was in heaven. And God was writing all those things down. And God's judgment had reached the place where it was about to pour over. And God said, I'm going to raise up somebody that's going to wipe away all the inhabitants of Ahab. I know it's violent. I know it's brutal. But it's a picture narrative of the strength that we need in the spirit today. Because we're fighting against more than just flesh and blood. We're fighting demons and devils who are trying to destroy the home and emasculate men until men become voiceless and silent even in their own homes. And I want to challenge the men of our assembly today. Jehu recognized her witchcraft. Did you remember that? I said, note that word. It was a spell. Oh, pastor, can an entire nation be brought under the spell of demonic powers? Ask the people of the Jews who faced the, 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 the slaughter of Hitler. A whole nation of people, even in the church, even in the church, foiled by a spirit of witchcraft. It was a spirit of witchcraft. And the Bible says, listen, the Bible tells me that when Jehu went on his impassioned journey back to Jezreel, where the, where the capital of Ahab was located, or akin to Samaria, she was in the house of Jezreel. The Bible says that as he came up there, the scripture says that she had got herself all looking one way because you can look at it one way theologically or the other. Did she believe that she could entice the king to spare her life? Did she know that she was going to die and this was her last act of being defiant? I don't know, but either way, I believe in my heart of hearts that she thought that because of the sexual promiscuity and perversion that had been created during her time, that if she gained a certain look, she could invoke him, and she could entice him, and he would somehow spare her life. And she came to her, the window, and she batted her eyes, and she flashed everything at Jehu, and Jehu wasn't having none of it. Jehu said no, and then he called out, and he said, who is on my side, and out of the shadows came an emasculated generation that was tired of the spirit of Jezebel that had destroyed them and took away who they were. And as fathers and husbands, they came out of the shadows and they said, we are on your side. You know what we need in America today? We need emasculated men to come out of the shadows and say, I'm tired of it. Enough is enough. I'm going to pull this thing down in the name of 
Jesus. And the reason why I printed on the wristband, Jehu said, throw her down because it's no longer a day of four points and a poem when you come to the house of God. There's war in America today. And I'm calling men to arms today in the name of Jesus. Rise up. Your wives, your daughters, they are not your opposition or your enemy. They're your prize in Jesus' name. You're here to protect them and love them and serve them and show them what a godly husband is and a godly man is and a godly grandfather is or a godly brother in Christ. That's who you're here to defend and be the person God's called you to be. I'm challenging the men. There's an anointing of Jehu that's waiting on you. I didn't tell you this, but I will now since I'm, it's too late now. Sherry, go park the car. I know it's your car. It's got your name on it, but keep the passenger seat open. I've got on the other side of our wristband. Did you know what Jehu means in the original language? It means Jehovah is He. God's never been afraid to reveal His character through masculinity. Oh my God, I feel in the name of Jesus the resistance of demon powers that have pervaded the culture that are trying still to this day to rob men of being who God's called them to be. But God's raising up a generation. God raised up some Jehus. Put an anointing on our life. Put an anointing upon our life. Men have a calling and an anointing that women cannot. Just like women have a calling and an anointing that a man cannot. I don't know how much breast augmentation I could have. I could never nurse my children. I could never do what I watched my wife do. I watched her sit in her chair with our firstborn baby, unborn, and rock Ashley when she was still in her womb. I can never do that. But I can value her for what she does. And ma'am, I want to challenge you today. If that spirit's been pervasive in your heart and mind, cast it down in the name of Jesus. Let the men of God around you rise up. Your life will be forever better. To have a man of God in your life, a husband, a father, a brother, a, a Christ, have somebody puts his arm of love around you, say, Pastor, men have hurt me. I know there have been evil men. I remember reading when I was preparing this message and reading some of the narratives, and it was Bette Midler. I don't even know why would we want to bring her name up, Spirit of Jezebel, in this house today, but I will. She was writing about one of the most recent, she was speaking about one of the most recent uh, terrorist attacks when one of the Islamic extremists shot a lot of people, which is common to Islam. Sorry I said it. It's common to Islam. It's been that way since the beginning. It'll be that way until Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you that till he returns. But she wouldn't mention Islam. She said two things. Men and religion are worthless. She didn't have the courage to name what religion. And she grouped all men together. But she failed to mention that the folks that ran into the fray to kill the terrorists were men. So you can't group everybody together, but that's what the culture wants to do. God is not afraid of our masculinity. He created it. 
Men, we knew it can be abused. Absolutely it can be abused. But it can also be reconfigured, reapplied, walk in the light of the Word of God, and men can rise up. Today, like Jehu, we recognize we're anointed for servant leadership. Men, I want to challenge you. I'm going to get ready to bring you forward in just a moment. I'm going to anoint every man today. I'm going to put fresh oil on your head. And then I'm going to give you a wristband. And I want you, I want you to understand, it doesn't mean in any capacity, any type of distorted view of women, rather a godly value of the women that God's placed in your life. Men, you cannot be quiet in a time of war. Generations are counting on us. What are we going to do? We're going to confront this spirit in prayer. Did you hear that today? Men, let me tell you what God's called you to do. He said, Paul, I would that men would pray everywhere. You know how you pull these things down? Men, you learn to pray. Oh, God, I know I need to teach a new generation of how to pray. We don't know how to pray. We've got to be bold. The righteous are bold as a lion. Elijah locked heaven and unlocked heaven by his prayer. Men, you have the power to pray. Through prayer and faith, you know what we can do? We can throw her down. You can throw her down. You can throw down that spirit of Jezebel that is prevalent in the culture but also in the church. Our warfare is not with flesh and blood, is it, guys? Come on, is it? No. What We are called to pass the prophetic blessing to our families. We're called to pass it, men. That's the greatest gift that God's given you is an opportunity. What are you going to take to the grave? What are you going to take to the grave with you? Nothing but a heritage. A heritage of faith that you pass to those that were around you. You're called to pass a prophetic blessing to your families. You've been emasculated. You don't know how to pray. You don't know how to speak up. You don't know how to call upon the name of God. You're ashamed to look your sons or daughters in the eye and tell them how much you love them. That's wrong. I challenge you in the name of Jesus. Tell them, I told you many times, I'll tell you again, slobber on your children as much as they will let you. If Anthony would have let me, I'd slobber on him in that white coat. I didn't care. <laughs> But we're called. Jehu means Jehovah is he. Don't be afraid of godly masculinity. Don't abuse it, but use it for the good of your family, the good of the kingdom, and for the glory of God. I'll ask Daryl. Are you here, Daryl? Still with me? And if you would, come back to the key. Or either one. I didn't know Daryl right there. Aaron, either one. What are you doing in here, A.A. Ron? You came for a word, didn't you? Came for a word. Came for a word. Church family, this is real. This war is real. It's re Hello? It's real. We're the church. The world can live one way, but we got to live God's way. I mean, oh, God's got the best in mind for the whole family unit and for the body of Christ. Men, this is my day. I want our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment of time. I don't want you to be not ashamed. This is a moment. This is a moment. Church family, every person under the sound of my voice, Father's Day. 
You know, because I've been pastoring here for 16 years, you know that when I honor fathers and mothers, I don't preach necessarily about just honoring the father in our life or the mother in our life, but I preach about manhood and womanhood. I've done it for 16 years, and I'll do it until the Lord says that, that I'm not to be the pastor of First Assembly any longer. But I'll do it, I do it because I know, I know that there are those that have been hurt deeply by men. And therefore, and, but it's not all just women. Can I say that as we pray? Sometimes there have been some, some mamas with a mean spirit about them. There have been some mamas that have abused. But let me carefully say this to you with your head bowed. You can't judge the whole by the actions of a few. Just because there have been those that have walked in that violent, oppressive, dominating, hurtful role or way doesn't mean that every man does. And doesn't mean that you can't expect that men in your life to be kind and considerate and loving all the while walking in their God-ordained masculinity. Don't try to strip away a man's masculinity. God called him. God made him. God's put him in your life. Let him be who God's called him to be. You be who God's called you to be. That'll bring the order into the family. And that releases the blessing. I know, guys, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I've been preaching to some men that have been emasculated. You just, your voice has been silent at times. You've not known what to do, what to say. You've not known how to pray. You've not been fervent in spirit. The Lord's calling you out. The Lord's calling you. This is your moment to get a fresh anointing on your life to be the person I don't know. Everybody under the sound of my voice is not a father. Every man under the sound of my voice is not a husband. Irregardless, if you're a man, then you're exactly that. You're a man. And it's all right to be a man. I don't care what the culture said. It's okay. You didn't create yourself. God created you. He made you. He put certain things in you and on you. God's got an anointing for your life. You don't have to be brash. You don't have to be arrogant. You don't have to be any of those things. You should not be. You can be humble, yet strong. You can be, you don't have to be physically strong to be spiritually strong. Did you hear that? We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with devils. You have the power in the spirit to pull down generations of curse. And bring generation of blessing to your family. It's never too late to begin. It's never too late to start lining up with God's way. And God's expectation for your life. You have to start somewhere. Why not start now? Why not start now? There's nothing wrong with getting up in the morning, man. And say, you know what? I'm going to be the man God's called me to be. I'm going to do the things that God's called me to do. I'm going to be faithful to him. There's nothing biblically wrong with that, no matter what the culture says. Matter of fact, I challenge the men to do exactly that in Jesus' name. Now, without, accept, uh, without 
any person uh, be, not being in church.